Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Good day, good day, you legends. Today, mates, I'm continuing our audiobook titled The Soul of Lilith. Chapters 5 and 6, where Lilith speaks for the first time. We learn that Elraimi is hunting answers in the spirit realm, answers from the universe, for the universe. We learn that Elraimi has a focus on death, the past, and the present, but also the future. We also learn more about Elraimi's powers, if they are indeed powers, or if he's just highly informed. And lastly, a priest that Elraimi encounters from one of his letters is definitely not what he seems. Join me, lovelies, for a very different kind of audiobook brought on by yours truly. Enjoy. Chapter 5 Deep silence followed his invocation, a silence he seemed to expect and be prepared for. Looking at a silver timepiece on a bracket above the couch, he mentally counted slowly a hundred beats. Then, pressing the fragile wrist he held still more firmly between his fingers, he touched with his other hand the girl's brow just above her closed eyes. A faint quiver ran through the delicate body. He quickly drew back and spoke again. Lilith, where are you? The sweet lips parted, and a soft voice, as whispered music, responded. I am here. Is all well with you? All is well. And a smile irradiated the fair face with such a light as to suggest that the eyes must have opened. But no, they were fast shut. Elraimi resumed his strange interrogation. Lilith, what do you see? There was a moment's pause. Then came the slow response. Many things. Things beautiful and wonderful. But you are not among them. I hear your voice, and I obey it. But I cannot see you. I have never seen you. Elraimi sighed, and pressed more closely the soft small hand within his own. Where have you been? Where my pleasure led me? came the answer in a sleepy yet joyous tone. My pleasure and your will. Elraimi started, but immediately controlled himself, for Lilith stirred and threw her other arm indolently behind her head, leaving the great ruby on her breast flashingly exposed to view. Away, away, far, far away, she said, and her accent sounded like subdued singing. Beyond, in those regions, whither I was sent, beyond. Her voice stopped and trailed off into drowsy murmurings. Beyond, Sirius, I saw. She ceased and smiled. Some happy thoughts seemed to have rendered her mute. Elremi waited a moment, then took up her broken speech. Far beyond Sirius, you saw what? Moving, she pillowed her cheek upon her hand. 
and turned more fully round towards him. I saw a bright new world, she said, now speaking quite clearly and connectedly. A royal world of worlds, an undiscovered star. There were giant oceans in it. The noise of many waters was heard throughout the land. And there was great cities marvelously built upon the sea. I saw their pinnacles of white and gold spires of coral and gates that were studded with pearl. Flags waved and music sounded. And yet two great suns gave double light from the heavens. I saw many thousands of people. They were beautiful and happy. They sang and danced and gave thanks in the everlasting sunshine and knelt in crowds upon their wine and fruitful fields to thank the giver of life, immortal. Life immortal, repeated El Raimi. Do not these people die, even as we? A pained look, as of wonder or regret, knitted the girl's fair brows. There is no death, neither here nor there, she said steadily. I have told you this so often, yet you will not believe. Always you bid me seek for death. I have looked, but cannot find it. She sighed, and El Remy echoed the sigh. I wish, and her accent sounded plaintively, I wish that I could see you. There is some cloud between us. I hear your voice, and I obey it, but I cannot see who it is that calls me. El Remy paid no heed to these dove-like murmurings. Moreover, he seemed to have no eyes for the wondrous beauty of the creature who lay thus tranced and in his power. Set on his one subject, the attainment of a supernatural knowledge. He looked as pitiless and impervious to all charm as any grand inquisitor of old Spain. Speak of yourself and not of me, he said authoritatively. How can you say there is no death? I speak true. There is none. Not even here. Not anywhere. Oh, daughter of vision, where are the eyes of your spirit? Demanded El Remy angrily. Search again and see. Why should all nature arm itself against death if there be no death? You are hard said Lilith sorrowfully. Should I tell you what is not true? If I would, I cannot. There is no death. There is only change. Beyond Sirius, they sleep. Oremi waited, but she had paused again. Go on, he said. They sleep. Why and, and when? When they are weary responded Lilith, when all is done that they can do, and when they need rest, they sleep, and in their sleep they change. The change is. She ceased. The change is death. 
said Oremi positively, for death is everywhere. Not so, replied Lilith quickly, and in a ringing tone of clarion-like sweetness, the change is life, for life is everywhere. There ensued a silence. The girl turned away, and bringing her hand slowly down from behind her head, laid it again upon her breast over the burning ruby gem. El Raimi bent above her closely. You are dreaming, Lilith, he said as though he would force her to own something against her will. You speak unwisely and at random. Still, silence. Lilith, he called. No answer. Only the lovely tints of her complexion, the smile on her lips, and the tranquil heaving of her rounded bosom indicated that she lived. Gone! And Oremi's brow clouded. He laid back the little hand he held in its former position and looked at the girl long and steadily. And so firm in her assertion, as foolish an assertion as any of the fancies of Ferraz. No death, nay, as well say no life. She has not fathomed the secret of our passing hence. No, not though her flight has outreached the realm of Sirius, but that the dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born, no traveller returns, puzzles the will. Aye, puzzles the will and confounds it. But must I be baffled then? Or is it my own fault that I cannot believe? Is it truly her spirit that speaks to me? Or is it my own brain acting upon hers in a state of trance? If it be the latter, why should she declare things I never dream of, and which my reason does not accept as possible? And if it is indeed her soul, or the ethereal essence of her that thus saw that, at periodic intervals of liberty, into the unseen, how is it that she never comprehends death or pain? Is her vision limited, only to behold harmonious systems moving to a sound of joy? And seized by a sudden resolution, he caught both the hands of the trance girl and held them in his own. The while he fixed his eyes upon her quiet face, with a glance that seemed to shoot forth flame. Lilith, Lilith, by the force of my will and mastery over thy life, I bid thee return to me. O fitting spirit, ever bent on errand of pleasure, reveal to me the secrets of pain. Come back, Lilith, I call thee. Come. A violent shudder shook the beautiful, reposal figure. The smile faded from her lips, and she heaved a profound sigh. <sighs> I am here. Listen to my bidding, said El Raimi in measured accents that sounded almost cruel. As you have soared to heights ineffable, even so descend to lowest depths of desolation. Understand and seek out sorrow. Pierce to the root of suffering. Explain the cause of unveiling agony. These things exist here in this planet of which you know nothing save my voice. Here. If nowhere else in the wide universe we gain our bread 
with bitterness and drink our wine with tears. Solve me the mystery of pain, of injustice, of an innocent child's anguish on its deathbed I, Though you tell me there is no death, of a good man's ruin, of an evil woman's triumph, of despair or self-slaughter, of all the horrors upon horrors piled, which make up this world's present life. Listen, O oh, too ecstatic and believing spirit, we have a legend here that a God lives, a wise, all-loving God, and he, this wise and loving one, has out of his great bounty invented for the torture of his creatures hell. Find out this hell, Lilith. Prove it. Bring the plan of its existence back to me. Go, bring me news of devils, and suffer, if spirits can suffer, in the unmitigated suffering of others. Take my command, and go hence. Find out God's hell, so shall we afterwards know the worth of heaven. He spoke rapidly, impetuously, passionately, and now he allowed the girl's hands to fall suddenly from his clasp. She moaned a little, and instead of folding them one over the other as before, raised them palm to palm in an attitude of prayer. The color faded entirely from her face, but an expression of the calmest, grandest wisdom, serenity, and compassion came over her features as of a saint prepared for martyrdom. Her breathing grew fainter and fainter till it was scarcely perceptible, and her lips parted in a short, sobbing sigh. Then they moved and whispered something. El Remy stooped over her more closely. What is it? he asked eagerly. What did you say? Nothing. Only farewell. And the faint tone stirred the silence like the last sad echo of a song. And yet, once more, farewell. He drew back and observed her intently. She now looked like a recumbent statue, with those upraised hands of hers so white and small and delicate. And Elraimi remembered that he must keep the machine of the body living if he desired to receive through its medium the message of the spirit. Taking a small phial from his breast, together with the necessary surgeon's instrument used for such purposes, he pricked the rounded arm nearest to him and carefully injected into the veins a small quantity of a strange, sparkling fluid, which gave out a curiously sweet and pungent odour. As he did this, the lifted hands fell gently into their original positions, crossed over the ruby star. The breathing grew steadier and lighter. The lips took fresh colour, and El Remy watched the effect with absorbed interest and attention. One might surely preserve her body so, forever, he mused half aloud. The tissues renewed, the blood reorganized, the whole system completely nourished with absolute purity, and not a morsel of what is considered food 
which contains so much organic mischief, allowed to enter that exquisitely beautiful mechanism which exhales all waste upon the air through the pores of the skin as naturally as a flower exhales perfume through its leaves. A wonderful discovery. If all men knew it, would not they deem themselves truly immortal, even here? But the trial is not over yet. The experiment is not perfect. Six years has she lived thus, but who can say whether indeed death has no power over her? In those six years she has changed. She has grown from childhood to womanhood. Does not change imply age? And age suggests death. In spite of all science? Oh, inexorable death! I will pluck its secret out if I die in the effort. He turned away from the couch, then seemed struck by a new idea. If I die, did I say, but can I die? Is her spirit right? Is my reasoning wrong? Is there no pause anywhere? No cessation of thought? No end to the insatiability of ambition. Must we plan and work and live forever? A shudder ran through him. The notion of his own perpetuity appalled him. Passing a long mirror framed in antique silver, he caught sight of himself in it. His dark, handsome face, rendered darker by the contrasting whiteness of his hair, his full black eyes, his fine but disdainful mouth, all looked back at him with the scornful reflex of his own scornful regard. He laughed a little bitterly. <laughs> there you are, Elremi Zaranos, he murmured half aloud. Scoffer and scientist, master of a few common magnetic secrets such as the priests of ancient Egypt made sport of. Though in these modern days of culture, they are sufficient to make most men your tools. What now? Is there no rest for the inner calculations of your mind? Plan and work and live forever? Well, why not? Could I fathom the secret of a thousand universes? Would that suffice me? No. I should seek for the solving of a thousand more. He gave a parting glance round the room, at the fair trance form on the couch, and the placid Zaroba slumbering in a corner, and the whole effect of the sumptuous apartment, with its purple and gold, its roses, its crystals and ivory adornments. Then he passed out, drawing to the velvet curtains noiselessly behind him in the small anteroom. He took up the slate and wrote upon it. I shall not return hither for forty-eight hours. During this interval, admit as much full daylight as possible. Observe the strictest silence, and do not touch her. El Raimi. Having thus set down his instructions, he descended the stairs to his own room, where, extinguishing the electric light, he threw himself on his hard camp bedstead and was soon sound asleep. Chapter 6 I do not believe in a future state, and I am very much distressed about it. 
The speaker was a stoutish, able-bodied individual in clerical dress, with rather a handsome face and an easy, agreeable manner. He addressed himself to Elremi, who, seated at his writing table, observed him with something of a satirical air. You wrote me this letter, queried Elremi, selecting one from a heap beside him. The clergyman bent forward to look and, recognizing his own handwriting, smiled a bland assent. You are the Reverend Francis Anstruther, vicar of Lanark, a great favorite with the bishop of your diocese, I understand. The gentleman bowed blandly again, then assumed a meek and chastened expression. That is, I was a favorite of the bishop at one time, he murmured regretfully. And I suppose I am now. Only I fear that this matter of conscience... Oh, it is a matter of conscience, said Oremi slowly. You are sure of that? Quite sure of that. And the Reverend Francis and Struther sighed profoundly. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. I beg your pardon. And the clergyman opened his eyes a little. Nay, I beg yours. I was quoting Hamlet. No. Oh. There was a silence. Oremi bent his dark, flashing eyes on his visitor, who seemed a little confused by the close scrutiny. It was the morning after the circumstances narrated in the previous chapter. The clock marked ten minutes to noon. The weather was brilliant and sunshiny, and the temperature warm from the uncertain English month of May. El Remy rose suddenly and threw open the window nearest him, as if he found the air oppressive. Why did you seek me out? He demanded, turning towards the reverend gentleman once more. Well, really, it was the merest accident. It always is, said El Remy with a slight dubious smile. I was at Lady Melthorpe's the other day, and I told her my difficulty. She spoke of you, and she felt certain you would be able to clear up my doubts. Not at all. I am too busy clearing up my own, said Oremi burlesquely. The clergyman looked surprised. Dear me, I thought from what the ladyship said that you were scientifically certain of... Of what? interrupted Oremi. Of myself? Nothing more uncertain in the world than my own humor, I assure you. Of course, I am not a student of human caprice, of life or death, neither. I am simply trying to prove the existence of a something after death, but I am certain of nothing, and I believe in nothing unless proved. But, said Mr. Anstruther anxiously, you will, I hope, allow me to explain that you leave a very different impression on the minds of those to whom you speak. Even the one you now suggest, Lady Melfort, for instance. Lady Melfort believes what it pleases her to believe, said Oremini quietly. All pretty, sensitive, imaginative women do. That accounts for the immense success of Roman Catholicism with women. It is a graceful, pleasing, comforting religion. Moreover, it is really becoming to a woman. She looks charming with a rosary in her hand or a quaint old missile, and she knows it. Lady Melthorpe is a believer in ideals. Well, there is no harm in ideals, 
Long may she be able to indulge in them. But Lady Melthorpe declares that you are able to tell the past and the future, persisted the clergyman, and that you can also read the present. And if that is so, you must surely possess visionary power. Ulremi looked at him steadfastly. I can tell you the past, he said, and I can read your present, and from the two portions of your life, I can calculate the last edition, the future. But my calculation may be wrong. I mean, wrong as regards coming events. Past and present I can never be mistaken in, because there exists a natural law by which you are bound to reveal yourself to me. The Reverend Francis Anstruther moved uneasily in his chair, but managed to convey into his countenance the proper expression of politely incredulous astonishment. This natural law, went on El Remy, laying one hand on the celestial globe as he spoke, has been in existence ever since man's formation. But we are only just now beginning to discover it, or rather, rediscover it, since it was tolerably well known to the priests of ancient Egypt. You see this sphere, and he moved the celestial globe around slowly. It appears the pattern of the heavens according to our solar system. It represents the pattern of the heavens according to our solar system. Now, a Persian poet of old time declared in a few wild verses that solar systems taken in a mass could be considered the brain of heaven, the stars being the thinking, moving molecule of that brain. A sweeping idea, what your line and pattern critics would call far-fetched, but it will serve me just now for an illustration of my meaning. Take this brain of the heaven, by way of simile then. It is evident we, we human pygmies, are, notwithstanding our ridiculous littleness and inferiority, able to penetrate correctly enough into some of the mysteries of that star-teeming intelligence. We can even take patterns of its shifting molecules. And again, he touched the globe beside him. We can watch its modes of thought and calculate when certain planets will rise and set. And when we cannot see its action, we can get its vibrations of light to the marvelous extent of being able to photograph the moon of Neptune, which remains invisible to the eye, even with the assistance of a telescope. You wonder what all this tends to. Well, I speak of vibrations of light from the brain of heaven, vibrations which we know are existent and which we prove by means of photography. And because we see the result in black and white, we believe in them. But there are other vibrations in the universe which cannot be photographed, the vibrations of the human brain which, like those emanating from the brain of heaven, are full of light and fire, and convey distinct impressions or patterns of thought. People speak of thought transference from one subject to another as if it were a remarkable coincidence. Whereas you cannot put a stop to the transference of thought, it is in the very air, like the germs of disease or health, and nothing can do away with it. I do not exactly understand, murmured the clergyman with some bewilderment. Ah, you want a practical demonstration of what seemed a merely abstract theory. Nothing easier. 
and moving again to the table, he sat down, fixing his dark eyes keenly on his visitor. As the stars pattern heaven in various shapes, like the constellation Lyra or Orion, so you have patterned your brain with pictures or photographs of your past and present. All your past, every scene of it, is impressed in the curious little brain particles that lie in the various cells. You have forgotten some incidents, but they would all come back to you if you were drowning or being hung. Because suffocation or strangulation would force up every infinitesimal atom of brain matter into extraordinary prominence for the moment. Naturally, your present existence is the most vivid picture with you. Therefore, perhaps, you would like me to begin with that. Begin? How? Asked Mr. Anstruther, still in amazement. Why, let me take the impression of your brain upon my own. It is quite simple and quite scientific. Consider yourself the photographic negative and me the sensitive paper to receive the impression. I may offer you a blurred picture, but I do not think it likely. Only if you wish to hide anything from me, I would advise you not to try the experiment. Really, sir, this is very extraordinary. I am at a loss to comprehend. Oh, I will make it quite plain to you said El Remy with a smile. There is no witchcraft in it, no trickery, nothing but the commonest ABC science. Will you try? Or would you prefer to leave the matter alone? My demonstration will not convince you of a future state, which was the subject you first spoke to me about. It will only prove to you the physiological phenomena surrounding your present constitution and condition. The Reverend Francis Anstruther hesitated. He was a little startled by the cold and convincing manner with which Oremi spoke. At the same time, he did not believe in his words, and his own incredulity inclined him to see the experiment, whatever it was. It would be all hocus-pocus, of course. This oriental fellow could know nothing about him. He had never seen him before, and must therefore be totally ignorant of his private life and affairs. Considering this for a moment, he looked up and smiled. I shall be most interested and delighted, he said. To make the trial you suggest, I really am curious. As for the present picture photograph of my brain, I think I'll only show you my perplexity of my position with the bishop in my wavering state of mind. Or conscience, suggested El Remy. You said it was a matter of conscience. Quite so, quite so. And conscience is the most powerful motor of a man's actions, Mr. Mr. El Remy. It is indeed the voice of God. That depends on what it says and how we hear it, said El Remy rather dryly. Now, if we are to make this demonstration, we will put your left hand here in my left hand. So your left palm must press closely upon my left palm. Yes, that will do. Observe the position, please. You see that my left fingers rest on your left wrist and are therefore directly touching the nerves and arteries running through your heart from your brain. By this 
You are, to use my former simile, pressing me, the sensitive paper, to your photographic negative, and I make no doubt we shall get a fair impression, but to prevent any interruption of the brainwave rushing from you to me, we will add this little trifle. And he dexterously slipped a steel band over his hand and that of his visitor, as they rested thus together on the table, and snapped it too. A sort of handcuff, as you perceive it. It has nothing in the world to do with our experiment. It is simply placed there to prevent your moving your hand away from mine, which would be your natural impulse if I should happen to say anything disagreeably true. And to do so would, of course, cut the ethereal thread of contact between us. Now, are you ready? The clergyman grew a shade paler. El Remy seemed so very sure of the result of his singular trial that it was a little bit disagreeable. But having consented to the experiment, he felt he was compelled to go through with it. So he bowed a nervous assent, whereupon El Remy closed his brilliant eyes and sat for one or two minutes silent and immovable. A curious fidgetness began to trouble the Reverend Francis Anstruther. He tried to think of something ridiculous, something altogether apart from himself, but in vain. His own personality, his own life, his own secret aims seemed all to weigh upon him like a sudden incubus. Presently, tingling sensations prickled his arm, as with burning needles. The hand that was fettered to that of El Remy's felt as hot as though it were being held to a fire. All at once, El Remy spoke in a low tone without opening his eyes. The shadow impression of a woman, brown-haired, dark-eyed, of a full, luscious beauty, and a violent, unbridled, ill-balanced will, mindless, but physically attractive. She dominates your thought. A quiver ran through the clergyman's frame. If he could only have snatched away his hand, he would have done it then. She is not your wife, went on El Remy. She is the wife of your wealthiest neighbor. You have a wife, an invalid. You have also eight children. But these are not prominent in the picture at present. The woman with the dark eyes and hair is the chief figure. Your plans are made for her. He paused, and again the wretched Mr. Anstruther shuddered. Wait, wait, exclaimed El Remy suddenly in a tone of animation. Now it comes clearly. You have decided to leave the church, not because you do not believe in a future state, for this you never have believed at any time, but because you wish to rid yourself of all moral and religious responsibility. Your scheme is perfectly distinct. You will make out a case of conscience to your authorities and resign your living. You will then desert your wife and children. You will leave your country in the company of the woman whose secret lover you are. Stop! Stop! Cried the Reverend Mr. Anstruther, savagely endeavouring to wrench away his hand from the binding fetter which held it remorselessly to the hand of Oremi. Stop! You are telling me a pack of lies. Elremi opened his grey, flashing orbs and surveyed him at first, in surprise, then with a deep, unutterable contempt, 
Unclasping the steel band that bound their two hands together, he flung it by and rose to his feet. Lies! He echoed indignantly. Your whole life is a lie, and both nature and science are bound to give the reflex of it. What? Would you play me a double part with the eternal forces and think to succeed in such desperate fooling? Do you imagine you can deceive supreme omniscience, which holds every star and every infinitesimal atom of life in a network of such instant vibrating consciousness and contact that in terrible truth there are and can be no secrets hid? You may, if you like, act out the wretched comedy of feigning to deceive your God, the God of the churches, but beware of trifling with the real God, the absolute ego sum of the universe. His voice rang out passionately upon the stillness. The clergyman had also risen from his chair and stood nervously fumbling with his gloves, not venturing to raise his eyes. I have told you the truth of yourself, continued El Remy more quietly. You know I have. Why then do you accuse me? Of telling you lies. Why did you seek me out at all if you wish to conceal yourself and your intentions from me? Can you deny the testimony of your own brain reflected on mine? Come, confess, be honest for once. Do you deny it? I deny everything, replied the clergyman, but his accents were husky and indistinct. So be it. <laughs> and Oremi gave a short laugh of scorn. <laughs> your case of conscience is evidently very pressing. Go to your bishop and tell him you cannot believe in a future state. I certainly cannot help you to prove that mystery. Besides, you would rather there be no future state. A something after death must needs be an unpleasant point of meditation for such as you. Oh yes, you will get your freedom. You will get all you are scheming for, and you will be quite a notorious person for a while on account of the delicacy of your sense of honor and the rectitude of your principles. Exactly. And then your final coup, your running away with your neighbor's wife, will make you notorious again, in quite another sort of fashion. Ah, every man is bound to weave the threads of his own destiny, and you are weaving yours. Do not be surprised if you find you have made them a net wherein to become hopelessly caught, tied and strangled. It is no doubt unpleasant for you to hear these things. What a pity you came to me. The Reverend Francis Anstruther buttoned his glove carefully. Oh, I do not regret it, he said. Any other man might perhaps feel insulted, but... But you are too much of a Christian to take offense. Yes, I dare say, interposed El Remy satirically. I thank you for your amiable forbearance. Allow me to close this interview. And he was about to ring the bell when his visitor said hastily and with an effort at appearing unconcerned. I suppose I may rely on your secrecy, respecting what has passed. Secrecy? And Oremi raised his black eyebrows disdainfully. What you call secrecy, I know not. But if you mean that I shall speak of you and your affairs, why, make yourself quite easy on that score. I 
shall not even think of you after you have left this room. Do not attach too much importance to yourself, reverend sir. True, your name will soon be mentioned in the newspapers, but this should not excite you to an undue vanity. As for me, I have other things to occupy me, and clerical cases of conscience such as yours fail to attract either my wonder or admiration. He touched the bell. Feraz! This, as his younger brother instantly appeared. The door. The Reverend Francis Anstruther took up his hat, looked into it, glanced nervously round at the picturesque form of the silent Ferraz, then with a sudden access of courage, looked at Oremi. That handsome Oriental's fiery eyes were fixed upon him. The superb head, the dignified figure, the stately manner all combined to make him feel uncomfortable and awkward. But he forced a faint smile. It was evident he must say something. You are a very remarkable man, M Mr. El Raimi. He stammered. It has been a most interesting and instructive morning. El Raimi made no response other than a slight frigid bow. The clergyman again peered into the depths of his hat. I will not go as so far to say you were correct in anything you have said, he went on, but there was a little truth in some of your illusions. They rarely applied, or some were applied to past events. But these are gone circumstances, you understand? Ilremi took one step toward him. No more lies in heaven's name, he said in a stern whisper. The air is poisoned enough for today. Go! Such a terrible earnestness marked his face and his voice that the Reverend Francis retreated abruptly in alarm, and stumbling out of the room hastily, soon found himself in the open street with the great oaken door of Aremi's house shut upon him. He paused a moment, glanced at the sky, then at the pavement, shook his head, drew a long breath, and seemed on the verge of hesitation. Then he looked at his watch, smiled a bland smile, and hailing a cab, was driven to lunch at the Criterion, where a handsome woman with dark hair and eyes met him with mingled flattery and upbraiding and gave herself pouting and capricious air of offence because he had kept her ten minutes waiting. And this concludes chapter six. Well, you legends, I hope you enjoy those two chapters. We learned a lot about Aremi in these two chapters, actually. We learned what he's hunting for, but not why. We learned that he may have powers, but feels that they are being squandered or that he's unheard. And that in this world, there is sparkle magic juice that sends you into a realm of the Fae, perhaps. What are your thoughts, hmm? Do you think Oremi is hunting for answers he shouldn't seek? Well, we'll find out, of course. Mate, thank you for listening, you amazing people. If you find a couple of seconds in your day, send an iTunes review my way. Reach out to me through email at storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com where you can chat to me directly. I promise I do not bite and genuinely love hearing from listeners. 
Also, I want to put some time aside now to thank the amazing people that keep this show blistering along. First up is my Ode Night Tea Titan, Matto Star. Like a solid football kick whose goalposts are as wide as the moon, lobbing that sucker right straight through the center for that lovely goal. Buddy, thanks to you, I have been able to enhance my audio even further, reduction in distortion, removal of echo, and all around clean up today's audio for that crisp audio experience. In fact, this episode complies now to ASX audiobook standards, which is not something that all narrators can meet. Thanks to you, mate, I'm able to use the software to tweak the audio to make those auditory guidelines and match them. Thank you so much, Matto. You are a legend. And I received your awesome email. Can't wait to sink my teeth into it. Second time's a charm, buddy, and I appreciate that. And also an honorary thank you to Maya, the queen of cats, who helped this podcast also get its bearings when it was just starting out. Thank you immensely, and may Bastet watch over all of you. Also, I want to thank the legendary Lazuka Rex, the Bower Bro, who helps this episode fly to the moon and back. Thank you immensely for your support, buddy. I'm considering moving to a new digital audio workflow, moving over to Reaper Studios, because the new software I have, although it's good, poses major issues with technological incompatibility. Essentially, new stuff that I have that is uber-powerful can't be read by free software any longer. So I'm going to save up Patreon support to cover it. Thank you immensely, mate. And thank you for your continuous support. Much love. And of course, the frontline defenders of all things tea-flavored and story-inspired, my Earl Grey enforcers. I've got Chad Warren, Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Solstra, and Paige Kramer. Thank you, you lovely tea warriors, for your support. You're the special lot of peeps that keeps the show bubbling along, and I'm lucky to have you. You too can have your name and soul thanked on this show, and see where your donations go directly by supporting me via Patreon. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt and you can support me at any level you like. Now, write your story, share your tale, and make it creepy or something silly about a snail. But remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine, or the tingle that makes you smile from that perfect plotline. That's the magic of storytelling. Like tea, it's divine. You took the time to listen to me, and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet.